on, walk on with hope in your heart, and you'll never walk alone. You'll never walk alone. Welcome to uh, this episode of the Brookie and Burjo podcast, and welcome to. Darren Burgess has been released from his uh, hub life in Queensland. How are you going, Burjo? Yeah, it's, uh, there's good and bad reasons for being released, as you know, <laughs> Doc. Uh, good yep. reason is uh, obviously to get to get out of that hotel room that I had 82 nights in. And uh, the reason being is that we weren't good enough to make the final. So, uh, yeah, anyway, that's okay. We'll look to fight again next year. Great. Well, our intro was... Uh... Did you recognise the artist? It was Johnny Cash, um, who uh, recorded that version of You'll Never Walk Alone in 2003 on his Unearthed album. And that was the choice of our guest for this week, who's a mate of yours, Berger. Would you like to introduce him? Yeah, it's an absolute pleasure to, to bring on Mark Bizzer. Um, for those who don't know, before we get to the speak, Mark, uh, Mark's... Um, a professional big wave surfer, uh, but also an, a, an author and uh, speaker and and all round uh, yeah adventure freak. Uh, so predominantly in and around the ocean. So welcome, Biz. Great to have you here, mate. Oh, oh thanks for having me. Um, that was a, that was a cool uh, intro. Predominant freak. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Now look, I reckon um, we'll we'll kick start. Mark, uh, Viz, I should say. I'm, I'm trying to be all formal here. But yeah. um, give me uh, Ocean Adventurer. Give me the most, just so people can get, because uh, uh, most of the people listening to this, these will be in minor brookies profession and a little more mainstream sports, I would guess. So uh, give our listeners the most, uh, what we would consider insane thing you've done. Okay. Well, in my head, like if you said to me, what was the thing that caused me the the most amount of fear and excitement, all of those combined would be a project that I worked on called Operation Night Rider, where I uh, I rode one of the world's biggest waves um, called Piahi, or it's known as Jaws, uh, in Maui in Hawaii at night. And it was um, a project that was so intense it took four years of planning and preparation to do but one of the most um exciting and rewarding things that i've ever done in my life yeah and certainly uh you can have a look at that uh that doco um you can find that on and around the internet just while we before we leave that sort of theme mate and we'll come back to it uh, do you want to tell everybody about the project that you're working on at the moment as well just if they don't think yes. that's bad enough yeah, yeah. Um, well, from that, um, I kind of experienced that feeling of climbing a mountain, so to speak, you know, like in my world or in my reality, I thought that if I could achieve that project, the Night Rider project, um, that was really the, the pinnacle of what it would be for me. But once I got there and, you know, the analogy of climbing the mountain was, you know, I realized that 
other things were possible and it really sort of swung me to a few uh, like imagination kind of moments that I had or things where I'd envision these really out there experiences of you know how would I ride or how would I get an experience to to be on one of the biggest waves in the world like bigger than anything that's ever been ridden uh, and that's the project that I'm working on now where we found and located a wave that's 100 foot um, and there's been people that have gotten close there's a place in Portugal called Nazare and it's it's been um, biggest wave there has been recorded 82 feet and that's wow. uh, the current world record but this particular spot is so remote the only way to get there was we had to put the jet skis in an aircraft and we all had to learn how to parachute and parachute our jet skis and the whole team out to this location to, to have a crack at riding it. So we've done all the training, we've done all the preparation um, and then we're sort of now in a, in a holding pattern waiting for the opportunity to actually go and experience that moment. And just one more on this because it seems like I'm being a bit flippant about some of these achievements and I promise you I'm not. But if you could just briefly tell the folks the story of one of the practice runs uh, where you you pretty much came inches from death and not probably the way that they would expect you to come inches from death. Yeah. Yep. Um, so one of, yep, there was, there, was, yeah. there was a week there was a week or so there where I was like every day thinking, far out, I nearly died again today. <laughs> <laughs> or, or so it felt in my world. But, um, yeah, I had an experience when we were doing the training for that and if you can kind of imagine spending your life trying to be comfortable in an uncomfortable environment in the ocean, like literally dedicating every part of your your being to 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 feel comfortable in massive amounts of water moving around. It's you know it's a lifetime goal and something that you know you're always going to strive to do. So for me, coming from that space, I then all of a sudden had to become good in the air, you know, and that was this new challenge of, okay, you got to learn how to fly out of an airplane or jump out of an airplane but track down the jet skis in the sky and then land, you know, directly beside them. And the project that we were doing, it was, it was really the turnaround was quite quick and we were going through so many jumps. But on one of the, the training drills, um, I was asked to, to help push the jet ski out of the airplane with the loadmaster and he just sort of said to us, look, one of the things that could go wrong here is if you stay too close to it when you're pushing it out because basically the airplane is going to fly on a slight angle and if you go out behind the jet ski, the parachute will open uh, in your face and it will kill you. You know, And he's literally just saying that you've got to be really mindful of, of the gap between it and you've got to just keep your distance. So I remember thinking, yeah, no, no problem. I don't want to be anywhere near it. And um, when it came round to the exit, so the, the inside the plane, it's all dark and then there's this red light and then the light flicks to green, which means it's it's sort of go time and the back ramp all opens up and that little dark world that you're in is really loud and noisy. I was so nervous and um, experiencing fear at a real high rate that I was literally sweating so much that the little water um, wetsuit shoes that I was wearing were just filling up with sweat. And when the loadmaster cut the line for the jet ski to push it out the rollers, I'm walking with him, and I've literally just slid inside my own sweat in my in my boots, and um, and nearly went straight out behind the ski. <laughs> and I remember just thinking, shit, that was the one thing he said that could kill us, you know. So yeah. I've I've hung onto the side of the wall, thinking, you know, of the plane, and just stopped myself from doing that. But then there was a malfunction where the, the jet ski's static line, which is the line that opens up the parachute, it failed and it snapped. 
and then the basically like a U-bolt that was connected to that come flying back and literally nearly scalped me, like literally it ran straight above the top of my head and in a couple of moments, like literally a couple of seconds, it was just like, whoa, like that nearly happened, then that nearly happened and a part of the training for jet ski like um, drops and or any kind of drop out of an aircraft is you have to get out straight away with, you know, the jet ski going out because every second you delay, you're now however many hundred metres away from it. So you had to just pucker up, so to speak, and um, shake it off and then, you know, follow the loadmaster's instructions of just to, to, to move out and, and jump. So I, obviously I did that and then I had a, um, an issue with my parachute lines. They they're all tangled and I was like spinning in a hardcore loop. So it was a bit of a rough rough day that day. <laughs> uh, just, 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 but, it's um, a slightly different version of uh, a bit of traffic on the way into work for the rest of us. But, yeah. Um, yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Uh, brilliant, mate. Look, that, so that paints the picture of what you do um, uh, probably the other part of your life that I've been exposed to a little bit more, fortunately, than than, um, than that side of things, is your work with professional athletes. Do you want to give us a two or three minute uh, summary of, of some of the outstanding work you do in that space? Yeah, well, it really came down to um, understanding fear and the way I was processing it. So in that moment that I just talked about, uh, straight after that parachute line sort of tangled up and I had an issue with that, I had what was called a sensory overload where literally my mind just blanked and if you were standing right in front of me, I, it was like I couldn't see you. It was like my mind had literally um, somehow removed all objects in front of me and it's really bizarre because you look at the footage of what I'm actually seeing and there's all these colourful parachutes swirling all around me and they're talking to me on the radio saying, hey, mate, you know, can you see us? And I'm like, I can't see anyone. You know, like it was like I'd literally frozen up inside my head. And what I realized was that happens to everyone or it, it can happen to everyone. In a, anyone, whether they be a, a professional athlete or a business person, if they're dealing with high amounts of stress, that buildup can, can cause this effect. And um, I really started to understand what was happening to me in the water when I was in really scary situations and I, I brought them back to um, environments that I could control. Like I brought in other coaches and, and paused those moments in time and said, okay, let's go back to here where I was totally crapping myself and this happened. Let's let's press pause and look at this from multi different ang- like all these different angles and understand how could I get out of that again? What are my options? You know, and so that's what I started to do in the process of understanding fear. And when it wasn't until that skydiving incident that I realised this isn't just about water. This isn't just about this space. It happens in every space. And these these topics or situations that they're happening to everyone. And it's the way that we physically break down that process. And so that's when I really just thought, wow, I can I can help a lot of other people. So initially, it started off with just the um, like say SAS guys and um, some Navy SEALs, and and that process. And then it led to um, I did a preseason camp for the Tigers, the Richmond um, Tigers team, up in Cairns. Um, and then I really had to adjust the model of what I was doing to help other athletes and other business professionals. But you know the type of groups that I've worked with now are very different, you know, athletes like Kelly Slater over to, you know, high tech um, Silicon Valley, you know, $4 billion tech companies, but they're all processing 
fear or stress or just large amounts of information at a high rate. And the process for breaking it down I've found to be very similar. Uh, now we're getting into to the crux of it. I am. Bookie, you just sit I there am. quietly it's and uh, listen to me and Viz talking. Um, um, so let's let's put this in a um, let's put it in a soccer perspective. And you've got an athlete who's got a penalty kick um, with only the goalkeeper to beat from twelve yards. Uh, you know, in a penalty shootout, hundred thousand people, Champions League final, and they're shitting themselves. What what's actually happening there? And what should be happening internally to that? I realise everyone's different, but if the athlete is presenting fear signs, what, what or how, without you know necessarily giving away any trade secrets, what should they be thinking? How should they be uh, handling that moment? Well, it's it's good to um, probably point out. This is my opinion of what that is, um, and yes. I don't proclaim to be understand everything or even what I say is 100% accurate, but this is my perception of this situation and this is my understanding of how I see it. Um, and how I see that is when you're shitting yourself, you're living in a moment of time ahead of time. You're, you're out of that exact moment. That exact moment is intense, but if you're shitting yourself, you're thinking about what could go wrong. You're thinking about what if I fuck it up? Um, you know, what if something doesn't, you know, what if I don't get the outcome that I want? Um, and this was something that I really started to understand with the, a lot of the breath work and things that I was doing was even if I was five seconds ahead of time, like literally if I'm sitting in front of a wave and it's about to hit me but it hasn't hit me yet, yet my body is experiencing massive amounts of fear, it's because I'm, I've, got, I've got a thought and that thought is, is causing an emotion which is then affecting my physical body and how my body is structured. So that soccer player is is playing off a, a thought which is creating an emotion which is affecting how his body is actually uh, set up or functioning. So to answer that question, what I'd be doing is trying to um, help that person stay in the moment, like stay in that space. And like we refer to it, or I've referred to it as uh, transient hypofrontality where you're literally in a space where time doesn't exist and it's super hard to do it, but it's it's easier for someone in a water environment because your body is supported by the water, so you can you can literally switch off muscle groups. And that was how I learned a lot of my training was to get into that state where I stop myself from overthinking. But then I've learned to be able to do it in other situations. So I'd be trying to work on understanding how that individual operates because like you mentioned earlier it's different for every individual but i'd be trying to understand what's going through that person's head um and then bring them back to that now moment as 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 easily as i could which which takes time and training but i would start by working on the physical body so looking at their physical setup um because if they're got a thought and it's created an emotion that's actually affecting how they're standing, how they're breathing and how they're feeling. So I would try and change those things, which hopefully then a change would, would, would stop those never ending thoughts coming in other than just what have I got to do right now? I've got to get the right, I don't know how a soccer player works, but you know, it could be similar to getting the right run up, getting the right, um, you know, the strike on the ball where the foot's hitting the ball. Like it's, 
all those little moments versus the outcome of kicking the goal. Interesting. I mean, we we hear uh, <clears throat> we've had uh, we had Travis spoke on a few weeks ago, an AFL player, and he talked about the importance of breathing. Um, obviously, you know, breathing is really important in these situations. Controlling your breathing, using breathing to sort of uh, bring yourself back to the to the moment. Yeah, absolutely. Well, for me, that's that's my space. You know, that's like I, I'm the way I work in that space is knowing the different uh, functions that we have, like, you know, our body set up for being in, you know, that parasympathetic state, which is when you're breathing and uh, you're able to breathe calmly, your brainwave activity is, is, is really quite low versus fight or flight or the sympathetic state where that heart rate's through the roof, the breath is really shallow, and that's causing a lot of brainwave activity. So the, the type of stuff that I've done in this space is literally had you know, like a cap that I've worn on my head with all these little sensors and monitors plugged into it to see what's going on and how that actually works. So you're 100% right in saying the first thing you would do is control your breathing, which would control the amount of thoughts that are coming into your mind, which would control your heart rate, um, which would lower that down, which would basically get your body to be reacting in a physical way to a state of peace or a state of calmness or a state where you're in control. Mm, fascinating. Yeah. So you said that uh, you worked also with, say, business people. So let, let's take it into a, into a business scenario. I mean, what, uh, how, you know, how do you work with those people? It's actually, in a way, it's the same thing. So that pressure kick that, that Virgo um, just mentioned is no different to that mega deal that needs to be done, you know, that massive amount of information that's gone through to a, an employee that's like, how the hell am I going to process all this information in a short period of time? That's no different to a huge wave coming to somebody. Um, so the way they're processing information, and you call it information, call it stress, call it fear, whatever you want, it comes down to being, I guess, what I would refer to as emotionally intelligent to understand the process of what's happening to your body and how you're um, dealing with that. So, um, you know, if someone's seeing that come through, like in a business sense, and then they're having a meltdown going, you know, like they're actually losing it thinking, oh, how am I going to process this or how are we going to now get this deal done because this has happened, this has happened. Like that's the kind of world that those guys live in. So it's a matter of bringing them back to that now moment, bringing them back to a state where they can function in a calm, clear manner to operate at their best. It's the exact same process. Like if I ask them, guys, show me footage of when you're functioning at your best. What does it look like? How does your body look? How are you breathing? The answers are always going to be the same. And so that's kind of what I'm always dealing with is trying to bring them back to that state. And so there's some of the cues that you would use for business people, sports people, anyone to uh, to bring them back. So tell us some other cues that you would uh, you would be using in these situations. Well, sometimes people say, "Oh, that's really well and good for you to say that." Like, yeah, just get out of your head and start breathing. But sometimes the noise can be so loud, and by noise I mean, you know, all the random thoughts that are coming through, and it's it can be hard for people to to get out of that and um and so some of the cues for that again is is essentially learning how to feel because if you can feel things you're just stopping thoughts um, and a classic example of that would be you know you'd say to someone 
take your shoes off and tell me what grass blades feel like on your feet. You know, and it was something that one of my coaches said to me many years ago. And I, I remember thinking it was the weirdest thing ever. And I'm like, why do I have to do that? He said, just take your shoes off and tell me what grass blades feel like on your feet. So I remember walking across this field and trying to actually feel, like literally close my eyes and go, okay, what does this feel like? And in that moment, and I've tried this many times before, it's it's almost impossible to, to be thinking about stuff if you're truly trying to sink into a feeling of what's happening there in that space. So that's what helps you connect back to you or to that moment in time. So that's another real um, useful cue. So what did you feel when you were uh, walking on the grass blades? Well, I, like, you know, I literally felt each blade stabbing into the heel of my feet, then to the center. And I remember going, this feels soft and this feels like this. And it was, but by trying to, and this is a real art in itself when you're doing a lot of breath hold work. So for me, like I have a breath hold of six minutes and four seconds, but in the breath hold space of things, that's actually not that big a deal. Like, you know, guys can hold their breath for, for 10 minutes naturally, but, you know, with just one large breath of air. But um, to do that, I had to get out of the thinking mind. And so when you do that, you are literally able to go into that state that I referred to earlier, that transient hypofrontality state where time doesn't exist. And the beauty of that is you can't reference past experiences. So I can't reference fear. I can't reference a time that when I was younger, I nearly drowned and how that was terrible and, oh, my God, am I going to do it again? Or I can't reference time. So I don't, I'm not thinking, oh, how long have I been under here for? Oh, this is going to be ages. You know, I need to breathe. So all those things are, are being taken out of the equation, which allow me to be present in that moment. And I think that's been one of the kind of main areas of what I would call emotional intelligence is learning how to feel, trusting, you know, and from a business sense, it's it's trusting that feeling because feeling is much faster than thinking. And when you can use that process, um, it's, it's what I believe one of the quickest ways to operate. I want to get back to what you said about breath holding. Uh, you said you can hold your breath for six minutes and four seconds. Some people would say, well, well, why? What's the, what's, the, what's the purpose of that? What's the advantage of that? That's a good question. Um, the purpose of it uh, for me in my particular sport is to be able to prove to myself that, I'm, that I could handle um, myself in a situation underwater. But I think um, in reality, it's also a bit of ego, and that's what I learned as well. Um, so having that big breath hold time wasn't actually – accurate in my space because you're floating in the water and you're not um you're not actually doing uh anything different like like what you would be doing in a big wave situation you're never in a calm swimming pool and not moving you're always you're always getting tossed and and spun around so the ego side of it was was um was something that i could see that was coming in but um, there was the fundamental side of understanding what was happening to my body and how to how to push and learn from that is that something you just trained yourself to do? I mean, presumably you didn't just sort of one day suddenly hold your breath for six minutes. It must have been something you, you worked on over a period of time. Absolutely. Years and years of, of training. And once I, I sort of got to the point and realised um, like all those different ways to tap into the feeling, so to speak, and get out of that thinking mind, um, I was able to really 
kind of push the boundaries of, of what I could do there. But what became really important was being able to hold my breath and then move, say, 50 metres and stay underwater and then, and then move again. That was really specific to my sport uh, and that's what became uh, really important, I guess. Right. Okay, look, I mean, this is amazing, but I want to go back uh, and, and tell me what sort of kid you were. I mean, were you a kid who was, you know, climbing trees and jumping out of things? And, and you know, were you always a risk taker, right, from, first, you know, from when you were a little one, or was this something that sort of developed in time? I think if, like in the water sense, um, I nearly drowned when I was a kid. So uh, at the age of three, or around that age, I uh, fell into a sheep's trough and um, nearly lost my life. My older brother pulled me out, um, you know, and after that apparently I would never go near a bath um, for some time after that. <laughs> um, and then I had another experience when I was, like, you know, a year or so later, I was walking along the beach um, I think it was down in uh, Gunnamatta in Victoria and, yeah. you know, I got ripped out of my mum's hands and I remember thinking, okay, I'm going out to sea forever and thinking I was going to die then. And um, so I was really hesitant as a kid in the water for sure. I didn't really even learn to swim properly till I was about 10. But as far as climbing trees and doing other stuff, yeah, I was probably, I was probably the kid that was doing that. I wasn't jumping off the bridges and uh you know or or setting any records in that space but i had a sense of adventure but i definitely had the awareness of oh you know i've you know like i've broken my arm from going down the, the big hill on the skateboard and so i've had i had the yeah. the, the experiences to learn that you know you got to put the brakes on somewhere right so how did you overcome that fear of water and you obviously more than overcome it <laughs> and uh what happened there um I pushed through in a lot of senses. Um, I think I got to the point where we moved to Queensland from Victoria and uh, and that was at the age of about 10 and everyone's like family experience was either at the beach or at a pool or someone's house with a pool. So I started to become more comfortable in that environment and I always loved being in the water but where I could touch the bottom and feel safe. Uh, and then as I was getting better at surfing and things like that, um, I, I struggled for a lot of it, you know, like right through to even when I um, would compete in professional events, um, I remember still having that overwhelming fear of uh, just feeling like I, I wasn't comfortable out here. And that's essentially what drove me to do what I did um, to surf Maui at night. Uh, that wave called Jaws was essentially, and I didn't realize this till after it, but I was really trying to prove to myself that I wasn't afraid and that I'd, I'd really um, set a task that was so high that would release me from that, uh, which is pretty stupid because I look back at it now and went, wow, all I had to do is actually just accept me for me and I would have, I would have um, saved the part of nearly killing myself in the process. <laughs> Yeah, and for most of us, you know, we would just say, well, you know, that's why, you know, there's no need to do that. Well, why do you feel you needed to, needed to do something like um, that? I didn't accept myself. So it was, you know, that lack of self-love, self-support, it wasn't there. Um, the ability to just be okay with being me uh, wasn't strong enough. And that's the thing that I, that I then realized was like, shit, if I had have worked on that, if I had have actually... Um, being a lot kinder to myself, I wouldn't have had to have driven myself to the point of 
you know, possibly even losing my life in the process of, of finding self-acceptance. Mm. And tell us, uh, and tell us, I've watched that Knight Rider uh, video. It's, it's amazing. I mean, tell us a little bit more about that whole, uh, that project and, and the process. Tell us exactly what to, what the, the wave's about and, and had anyone ever tried it at night before and, and how you went about it? Well, for me, like the, the place is, you know, its nickname was Jaws and they say that it's like a like a wild animal that locks you in its jaws and you can't get out of it. <laughs> so uh, its reputation was that it was the heaviest, biggest, best big wave there there is in the world. Um, and so the reason I used that as a benchmark was because I felt like I would be cheating myself if I chose anywhere else. So essentially I was, you know, thinking if I'm going to prove to myself without a shadow of doubt that I've overcome this, it has to be at a place that is, you know, um, the most, uh, respected place in the world. That was my, that was my train of thought. So why at night? I mean, had you surfed it during the day, and do people, uh, you know, do many people actually ride it during the day? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'd surfed it uh, many times during the day, and it's known to be one of the, you know, the the most amazing spots there is. And it was a place that just demanded respect, you know, throughout the day. And the dream really was to see if I could push the boundaries of what was possible. That was that was the imaginal imagination um like that that's where that story came from and was it your idea to, to do the the night thing or was that something you just talked about with with mates or with other riders or uh, how did it come about well it's a really interesting story it was a, a friend of mine who ran a local surf magazine and it was at a charity event and he said to me one night he said uh, i had this crazy dream that you rode this huge wave at night and he said, and my dad owns a company that makes underwater lights and that they're made for push bikes um, and you should, you should try it. And I remember just thinking that he'd had too many beers and it was a crazy <laughs> idea and, you know, one not really worth paying much attention to. But he was like, no, no, serious, I'll give you the lights. You should try it. He said this was one of the realest dreams I'd ever had. And he was, I could just see in his eyes that he was very serious. So I said, okay, mate, give you know, let me have a go at these lights and I'll check it out. And I tried to ride a wave in uh, maybe two foot surf and it was so dangerous. Like the, the jet ski that we're using just to whip in on a small wave, we flipped it in the night and we rolled it in the waves and the, the light was a, like a head beacon and it wrapped around my neck and nearly strangled me. And I remember just saying, mate, this is the stupidest idea ever. And um, <laughs> it, it wasn't until about four years after that point well I guess every year there'd be something that would happen that would trigger me to to pay attention or see if that was possible or revisit that idea but um it basically was totally modified and uh, I guess when I got to a point where I questioned myself as an individual to prove to myself you know what could I do that could prove to myself without a shadow of doubt that I was now not afraid of the water I straight away went back to that experience. I was like, that bloody Night Rider project, that would prove it. You know, that would prove to me without a shadow of doubt that I'm over this. And t tell us about the lead up to it and, uh, and how it came about in the end. Yeah, the lead up to it was really intense. The, the forecast for it was that it was going to be 60 foot um, and one of the biggest swells that had in ages. 
Um, and what we needed was light winds and a full moon and a lot of things to go right. And, uh, and those conditions were lining up on that day. And the last time that those conditions had happened were 10 years ago. So it was, it was really pointing towards that there was going to be a moment and an opportunity to do it. Um, I mean, it's a long story, but things went pear-shaped along the way. And, uh, you know, we, we completely had many moments to pull out of it. And as a group and as a team that, that we worked with, um, we had so many situations that, that were just crushed in front of us. And we had to really uh, stick together as a team to pull, pull that off. And um, it, it's all I can say is that once it was done, it was one of the biggest relieving moments of my life. What do you, what do you put so, the, um, the success down to? Sorry, Doc. Um, I got what do you put in terms of um, the success of? Because uh, there was clearly a team effort for that, um, even though you were the one, um, you know, who ultimately rode the wave. Uh, and you work with teams um, in the past and and currently. The successful ones, is there, in your opinion, a, a key ingredient? We obviously know they have to be skillful and they have to be fit and things like that. But of those intangibles, which are becoming a little bit more important and, and more um, uh, spoken about, I guess, what what do you think it is? I think it is um, and the opportunity I had to work with a team of other surfers had come up and that's when I realised the reason everyone said this particular project was impossible was because there were a lot of other limiting beliefs in there. And, uh, and that's when I realized that I needed to work with a team of people that had my back and that every single person in that team had this like mindset of we'll do whatever it takes and we'll work together and we'll support each other no matter what. And I really feel like when things got tough and when we were in situations where the whole project was completely jeopardised, what got it out and what got us in a position to keep having a fighting chance was that ability where everyone supported each other. And not just like a little bit, I'm talking about we'd go to war for each other. Uh, and I look back at teams and situations and environments and that connection, that oneness that, that that group had, it seems to be a very similar theme with uh, successful teams. It's never one individual. Although I might have been the front man, you know, there was every single person's role. If that wasn't executed correctly, there's no way it would have happened. But on the flip side to that, every single person's role was highly rewarded. Like, for example, the cameraman, his dream was to to shoot and capture, you know, some of the most amazing content in his life. And he shot in a helicopter that was flying backwards in front of these monstrous waves and he won, you know, a cinematography award for the best, um, best footage ever captured. And everyone in their role, like they all achieved something that they'd been searching for. So that was just the coolest thing to, to see that um, it really, even though it comes across as one person, it was it was something that everyone just won from in a way. And that's what we talk about. You know, we, we all, it was just like a, something that everyone just won and we all won across every single level you could possibly win on, which was, which was the coolest thing ever. Yeah, nice. And I guess one of the other concepts, which is a little bit um, that you and I have had some, some interesting conversations on, um, probably not as many as we like because of, because of COVID and I haven't been allowed out, but um 
this concept of love in a football team or in a in a group of athletes or in a um, you know even an individual athlete working with a group of coaches. Um, it's a generic question, so I want you to take it wherever you want it to go. Um, but yeah, how does this concept of love, which is a little bit um, taboo in amongst blokey blokes, if you like, um, yeah. h- how does that and where does that come in? Well, you know, I look at it back and like the way in my teachings and everything I've learned is the ultimate, I guess, warrior is someone that has unconditional love and support for the, the other um, warriors or soldiers within their team whereas a soldier mentality can be more about it's just me trying to stay alive um, so that love I think is it's everything you know and, and it is exactly right when you're in a, a masculine world and you start talking about love and connection and everyone working together you know the, the eyebrows get yeah. raised but when you understand it from its purest form where you're going to battle for each other when if you broke it down and you said what is your what is your dream? What is your ultimate you know ultimate vision that you want? You know, like in warrior times, it was to stay alive and to, yeah. to overcome things. So that that experience is just no matter what it takes, we're here for each other. Whereas today, you know, it might be to win an AFL grand final for an AFL team or to win the Super Bowl for an NFL team, and to them, that is like the most amazing life victory that they could experience. So to have them understand what that actually means and understand the fact that they're going to war in a sense with each other uh, and they need to have each other's back to, to, to have victory but not just on a level of, yeah, well, when it counts for me, it has to be like no matter what, like any person is willing to do whatever it takes to help everyone get across the line. When you have that bond and that connection of, you know, of love within the group, it's a really hard bond to break and if you're playing a team or you're up against an organization that has it, they're the most lethal psycho pack of killers <laughs> that you're ever going to come up against. And how do you get that? Yeah, how do you develop that? You know, how, What's the secret, do you think, to developing that, that love and that bond? Uh, it's a deeper understanding of each other to start with. People have to become vulnerable within their space. Like if everyone just keeps everything close and no one wants to share what they're really thinking or what they're really feeling. It's really hard to want to reach out and, uh, and be there for someone. So I think egos have to be dropped. You know, there's, there's situations where everyone has to look at each other as uh, equal individuals in an organisation where there are hierarchies and that's extremely hard to do. But if we, everyone looked at it as everyone has a role to fulfill and without that person doing theirs, nothing else is possible. A really deep understanding of that is sort of what starts to shift that mindset. Um, and a lot of the times it's perception, you know, like there'll be perception that someone is thinking and feeling a certain way and then yet you understand that person or get to know them a bit better and then you realize the reason they're operating like this or the, the reason they're thinking in this way is because of these experiences. So it, how do you, what's the secret source to it? Well, I don't think there's one direct answer, but I think it's along the lines of having an extremely deep connection and that comes down to you know, having that bond, knowing each other and the willingness to, to have each other's back no matter what. And then I would break that down again and go, well, how, how does that actually happen? Like what's going to cause that? Uh, it can be done in several ways. It can be done in 
um, you know, ways of understanding, well, look, we're all fighting for the same thing here versus, uh, you know, individuals playing in a team environment. It's really about sort of getting everyone on board and understanding that that is what it is. If you can't operate as one, if you can't stick together, um, you're never going to win. And when they, when the teams that do that, when they stick together and they fight together, that's that's when you see that sort of stuff side of it come out. Yeah, fantastic. Um, we're just about running out of time. Berger, you got time for one more? Yeah, one more question for me, mate, that I had written down. I wanted to ask at the start, but in your world of extreme sport and um, ocean adventuring, if if you could, uh, and on the, their mentality and your mentality, um, what's one or two traits that you would want to be transferred over to more traditional team sport athletes? What, what's one thing that they could learn from uh, from you guys if they open their um, their minds to it? I would say the number one thing would be like totally open, as in a sense where we all carry armour, so to speak. You know, we all have this layer of armour on to protect ourselves, to protect our ego, to make sure that someone doesn't humiliate us or make us look bad. If you could pass on the ability for someone to be armour-free and just basically to be an open heart, uh, that is going to be one of the most ideal traits to have because anyone could work with that person. There's no limiting factors in there. And if situations came up, that person would be open and willing to learn and help. And I think that would be by far the best trait to have, open-hearted people. (laughs) Awesome. Awesome, Viz. Uh, It's not often I can say this, but um, I had high expectations and you certainly delivered, mate. So, uh, (laughs) yeah, I really appreciate you coming on, mate. We we probably only scratched the service, Brookie, of of some of the things that we could talk about. Yeah, it's been fascinating. Yeah, absolutely fascinating. Um, Someone like Mark. But, no, I appreciate you coming on, mate, and I hope uh, I really appreciate your time and look forward to the next time we can... We can catch up and watch whales from your balcony, mate. <laughs> Sounds good. Thanks for having me, guys. Uh, thanks, Cheers, Viz. You're-